To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the, the body, body does, does not consist, consist of, of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. Please join me as we read aloud together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the bitter, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's Word. Let's pray, then we'll get into God's Word. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church and for beautiful weather, both inside and beautiful hearts on the inside. And uh, Lord, as we come to the Word today, God, we, we firstly thank you for our church, Transit Church, this uh, young church that you uh, are building. I also thank you for the churches in our area, particularly Christ Presbyterian Church in Burke, that today is their their first day, and uh, we rejoice that, Lord, you are building your church in Fairfax County in the D.C. area, and, and this area with almost six million people. Um, Lord, you're uh, calling men and women to this place to, uh, to risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. So we pray for their beginnings and that you would meet them where they are, and God, that you'd be glorified in their gathering. We pray that same thing for us. God, we pray that you open our hearts, open our eyes to see these scriptures as not just to people 2,000 years ago, but to us. And I pray that you'd um, help us to see Jesus. And I pray that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. If you're here for the first time, we have been in a series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. 
and he's writing it to a church that he actually started. It's about two or three years after he founded the church, he left, and they had this on-again, off-again kind of correspondence going on. And as you would do in letters that you would write to people that you know, he's encouraging but also challenging. He's commending but also giving a little bit of rebuke. Uh, this church is in the city of Corinth, which was a port town. It was international. It was large. There a lot of things going on in it. And Paul's concern was that they as Christians, as individual Christians, would be uh, the right display of the glory of God, the image of God, you know, in the culture, in the place that he had set them in. But he also had concerns that the church itself, this corporate body, you know, called after the name of Jesus, would, uh, would reflect who God is in the culture that God had placed them. And we find ourselves in a portion of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth where he's dealing strictly with corporate worship. So what do we do as the church? What should we do um, when we come to church to gather with each other? How should our worship look? And one of the things to focus on uh, in this particular section of Paul's letter are, are the words where Paul says, I do not commend you. All right, that, that means like he's not happy with, with what he's heard. So, of course, Paul uh, is not in Corinth. He uh, earlier tells us that he got a report from Chloe's people that there were some great things going on in the city of Corinth with the church, but there are a number of things that were of concern that Paul needed to address. There's also um, the, the suggestion that the Corinthians had sent letters to Paul asking him questions about how they should be the church in Corinth, and he's responding to, to those kinds of things. And so in this particular case, Paul says, I do not commend you. And in this, Paul's referring to divisions in the church. Paul had dealt with divisions before, all the way back at the beginning of his letter. Uh, in that occasion, he was dealing with uh, factions about who was the best preacher. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. This guy has a better um, whatever. Uh, but rather than talking about which preacher they like, this time they had separated themselves by socioeconomic group. They had, so, they had separated themselves into the rich versus the poor, how they were making distinctions among themselves in regards to socioeconomics and how they were treating each other differently. And in that, Paul was not commending them. And all this was happening in the midst of what Paul calls the church family meal. So context is important. In the first century, uh, Christians gathered on the Lord's Day. That would have been Sunday, just like we are doing this morning. They wouldn't have had a building like this. In fact, the early church didn't worship in larger buildings outside of houses until the third century or so. And so what did the church do? Uh, if they had a wealthy church member, they would all go to that person's house uh, and they would they would eat and fellowship and worship there. The church gathered in the evening because there was no such thing as a day off. Everybody worked in the first century society. And so they come together on the Lord's Day, Sunday night, and they meet in someone's home and they meet uh, particularly in whatever room, let's call it the dining room, that could hold about nine to, to 20 people. The rest of the house, the atrium, which was the, the main gathering room for the family, the courtyard would have been overflow. I mean, they would have like jam-packed themselves into this house to celebrate this, this meal and also uh, the things that happened when the church would gather together. And the main attraction of the, the weekly church gathering was called an agape feast, agape feast. 
This would have been a, a feast where everybody brought something to share, to contribute to the meal. We call that what? Potluck, right? Can you see this? The church has been doing potlucks for like 2,000 years. And so the church family shared a meal weekly as a reminder that they were the family of God. And they would feast together on all the gifts and graces that God had given them. And so that was the agape feast. But here's what's important about this agape feast. After that, after, that, after that feast, after that meal, after sharing this meal together, the church would remember Jesus by celebrating communion, or what we call the Lord's Supper. That sounds well and good, right? I mean, there's, there doesn't seem like anything's going on with, with that. Here's the problem. When the church would come together in someone's house at night on the Lord's Day, the wealthier people would get there first. Why? Because they probably didn't work or they got off early. I mean, their own, their own bosses or they had people that they worked for them. So they would arrive first. They probably bought better food and wine because they could afford it. And by the time the poor church members arrived, having come from work, straight from work to the, the worship gathering, all the best food and all the best drink would be gone. And so what would they be left with? Well, less, less food for sure. Their, their choices would be very slim in terms of pickings as to the food. And oh, by the way, they would have no seats at the table. The whole house would be filled with all these affluent and wealthy people, and uh, the poor socioeconomic people would be relegated to the outside or some other extraneous part of the house. Naturally, these poor folks were relegated to, to you know, almost no food, while the first comers were happy, full, and drunk. So that's what's going on in Corinth. And it's, it's after this feast that the entire congregation is supposed to come together and celebrate communion, a, a meal to remember Jesus, his death and his resurrection. So, I mean, can you imagine you're one of those who's challenged socioeconomically and you're coming straight from work to the, the church gathering. You bring whatever you're able to bring based upon your wage, or maybe you didn't have time to bring anything, and you're getting to this place where you're supposed to celebrate Jesus, and there's no food, the house is full, you're stuck on the outside, and you're thinking, well, we're supposed to be celebrating Jesus, and, well, you didn't leave me any food, you're drunk, and I thought Jesus died to make us one, like uniting us as, as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not a great moment. These people are thinking this is a mockery. So this, this agape feast was completely undermining the very celebration of the gospel that the Corinthians were supposed to be commemorating. You guys have been to family potlucks, right? Church potlucks. It's inevitable, right? The, the, the people that get there first, they're going to get first picks. They're going to get the prime rib and the fried chicken and the, uh, the mac and cheese that the person that you want the mac and cheese to make. And, you know, they're going to, they're, they're going to go ahead and get their dessert before everybody else is there because they get the first choices of all the desserts. And if you're not one of the first ones that doesn't get there first, then you, I mean, you get what's left over. And, and I don't know what gets into us. When we come to potlucks, we'll get the biggest plate, one of the nine-inch plates, not the six-inch, the nine-inch plates. And we're just going to load it up with food as if you can eat all that food. And unfortunately, you're eating all you want, but you don't, you're not giving a, a, a care about anybody else. And those who come later are picking over, like, they got potato chips and a couple cookies left. It always happens. And the problem whenever and wherever this happens, as it's just not kind 
nor is it loving. So Paul is going to challenge the Corinthian church and, and us by extension about this family meal, that the family meal reveals things about ourselves, that the family meal actually reminds us of and represents Jesus, and that this family meal rebukes, but beautifully it also redeems. And so we'll look at how this meal reveals things about uh, ourselves first. This is, a, this is a true saying, and this is something that I want you, this is a refrain I want you to think about as we're going through the text this morning. You and I demonstrate what we believe about God, ourselves, and each other at the table. You and I demonstrate what we believe about God, ourselves, and each other at the table. Now, obviously, we're, we're the, the, the overarching theme today is the communion table. That's what we're talking about. But, but in this phrase, that I'm, this refrain that I'm giving you, it's not just the communion table. It's, it's every table. It's every meal. You guys remember middle school, high school? I mean, you had... The, the middle school years, either you loved them or you hated them, and I think the majority of us, uh, there's just so much going on that they're not our fondest times. And there's kinds of crazy things that go on in the lunchroom experience when you're a middle schooler. Some of us have lots of friends, and you know we love our lunch, and we love our friends, and we have a kind of a gregarious time. The, other, uh, the others of us have a bad memory about particularly lunchtime in middle school, sitting at a table all alone, Perhaps you were teased or bullied. That's not fun. Fast forward, think about your life at work, however you do work and lunch right now. What's, what's that like? What does lunchtime look like for you? What does that look like in how you interact with other people? How you invite other people out to, to lunch with you or perhaps not for whatever reason? What does it look like for you to engage in opportunities at lunch? I think for most of us, we can be mindless when it comes to meals. We don't even think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Our stomachs speak louder than our hearts on most days. Our stomachs are the ones driving us to do whatever we will instead of our hearts leading the way, which means any kind of opportunities the Holy Spirit might bring our way to be kind, to extend grace, to be generous, are completely dismissed. We miss a lot of opportunities that, that God the Holy Spirit possibly wants to move us to love like Jesus does. One commentator says this, In an ideal world, the table is far more than a functional space where human beings mechanistically refuel, them, refuel by themselves. The table is a place where community is created and sustained. The table is a place where hospitality is extended and conversation is experienced. It's also a place where communal dysfunction or breakdown is seen and felt. Meals carry values. They tell stories about the people who prepare them, the people who partake of them, and even about the people who are excluded. And that's what's going on in Corinth. What's bad about the Corinthian church is the very thing meant to be a display of the gospel, this, this, this meal that they were celebrating and the communion that would take place afterwards is undermining the very gospel that the Corinthian church was supposed to be proclaiming. And if, if, there's, if there's ever a time when they should have gotten this right, it would have been on Sunday night, on the Lord's Day, in this house where all these people who call themselves Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, are there to celebrate Jesus, to worship, to fellowship, to slow down and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not singularly, not as individuals, collectively, together. They weren't doing that. 
They were there to celebrate being a distinct people in the world, and so how they eat together should have been distinct. It should shape everyday life and how they display the gospel, but also how they proclaim it. And that's Paul's point. The, the Corinthians had totally missed this. It's the same for us. We, we miss this point, not necessarily about communion in church, but we miss this point about the opportunities that we have to be the brothers and sisters in the Lord. It is worth pointing out that worship gatherings in the first century obviously aren't quite like worship, century, worship gatherings in the 21st century. Uh, our worship gatherings aren't necessarily surrounding, uh, surrounded by a, a family meal per, per se. Like we, somebody brought cookies, thank the Lord for you. I didn't get one, but I, and they're probably all gone, right? Did y'all eat all the cookies? There's one left. Uh, Butch says, I had one. I, I had one. And so their, their services aren't quite like ours. We, we aren't going to have a potluck at the end of our service here. But if ever, uh, I mean, if ever a time that we should get this right, it's, it's in this time as well. So here's what I would ask 21st century Christians about what we do when we come to, come to worship, because we missed the point too. Like we spent 20 minutes worshiping the Lord, but a lot of times we come in, it's like, oh my God, I, I like this song, but it's the wrong key, or they're going too slow, or going too fast. Or, I really wanted Rebecca to sing that song, not, not, that, not, not that guy. And I'm not saying, it, I'm, just, I'm just saying, right, right, right? That song's too loud. We also did it about the sermon. We can read the Bible, the pastor can talk about Jesus, but we can walk away saying, you know what, I didn't really get too much out of that sermon today. And then when we come to communion, a lot of times we'll get up, we'll come, we'll receive the elements, we do all this by ourselves. We go to our seat. We sit down by ourselves. We receive it. Give Jesus thanks for it. All by ourselves. When the, when the thing about communion is, is what? It's common union. Communion together. And then we get up and we leave. And that brings us to our text. Here's what Paul says. Verse 17. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, you come together as a church. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul says there, there's always going to be factions in the church. The, the Greek word that's translated factions is the word heresies. So it actually sounds worse than, it, than Paul is talking about. Here's what he's saying. He's like, there's, there's always going to be pockets of people saying, you know, I, I believe this. I don't believe that. I don't, I don't know why we're doing this. Why, why are we doing that? Uh, I'm a Calvinist. Well, why in the world would you be a Calvinist? Why, why don't we have ladies? Why don't women preach in our church? Well, why in the world are we baptizing babies? That kind of stuff. So in the, in the church, we come from different backgrounds and different philosophies of ministries. And what we know and hold to be true is typically whatever the last church that we went to uh, professed. And, and we are real mixed up in our church because 80% of y'all come from military. You know, like y'all are in the military. And so you're coming from disparate places, uh, having worship in different kinds of philosophies of ministry. So the uh, the likelihood of us thinking differently about the scriptures and believing in, in, differently in regards to how we um, how those are worked out corporately and even individually would cause some division. 
even in our church. Oh, by the way, that's why we have membership. Right, right, right. All right, y'all saw in the weekly update, membership class next Sunday. Uh, membership class isn't to force you to believe anything, but it's telling you what the leaders of a particular church believe so that you can be informed about what you're getting from the pulpit and the philosophy of ministry that you're subjecting yourself to. Uh, but it's not to necessarily bend your will to, to something that you might not want to, uh, to, to believe. That said, here's what's important for us. I'm going off track here. The church has to be a safe place. It, it does. We have to make room for people to mature in the faith as they are growing as disciples. I can remember as a young Christian reading the Bible and, um, and just not understanding it because revelation was happening as I was growing as a Christian. We gotta, we gotta leave room for that. So if you're in a community group and someone says something that's blatantly anti-Bible, anti-Christian, don't just like get a pillow and knock them in the head, right? We, we're, we're kind, we extend grace, and we point out from the Bible where um, what, what, they're, what they're believing may be untrue, all right? And then we, we disciple them. That's what, that's what we should do. All right, back to what Paul's talking about. Paul's, Paul's not talking about any of that. Right, right, right. You needed that, but Paul's not talking about that. The divisions that Paul's talking about is that the wealthy and affluent among them were not thinking about those that had less. Less time, less money, less resources. They were excluding people from the table, not caring for them, not welcoming them in. Verse 20, Paul says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the rich and affluent persons in the church were making a mockery of the meal. And because this looks nothing like Jesus and how he would treat other people, Paul says, I mean, you should just stay at home. If you're going to gather with the church, feed yourself and get drunk over and against, get drunk over and against everybody else, then, then don't gather with the church and please don't make a mockery of, of the Lord's Supper. Paul wants them to understand that what they do with the meal should train them for every meal. And every meal reveals what we actually believe about the gospel. So that's the first point. Meals reveal things about us, but it also reminds us of and represents Jesus. And we represent Jesus not just with our lips, but with our lives. There's an interesting thing that you can note about Jesus as you're just reading the, the, the Bible, particularly the Gospels. When we look at Jesus' life, when you think of his ministry, you see him engaging in a lot of meals. Jesus is always eating. Like one of the first times that we see Jesus, he's going to a wedding. Obviously, they're feasting, they're having fun, and he turns water into wine. Jesus is always at a meal. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Robert Carey, he taught me the Gospels course at RTS, and he says these important uh, points about Luke's Gospel. He says, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And we see this in Luke 7:34. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, "The Son of Man has come eating and drinking." And you say, he's he's mocking the religious leaders, and you say, "Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners." 
The thing to note here is, is how these people, these religious leaders, are talking about Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying how they, how they speak about him. And, of course, Jesus wasn't a glutton, nor was he a drunkard. They were saying that about him because of, because of who he hung out with. Who did Jesus hang out with? It tells us in the verse. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Here's the thing that, Paul's, uh, that, that Luke is pointing out here. Jesus ate with people that the religious leaders would never have allowed to be at their table. He opened, his, he opened up his life and he welcomed to the table those who were the most excluded from fellowship. One author says this, Jesus comes and he speaks about a common need and then he provides a common provision. The common need is our brokenness and sin. The common provision is himself as the bread of life. And, the, and then Jesus calls to us a common table where we, t- where we together partake and where we're reminded that as a common people, we have a common need that's fulfilled by a common Savior. Those are beautiful words. A lot of common, right? But, but that's the point. That's the whole point, actually. That's why we call it communion. You know, that's like two words put together, right? It's, it's common union, communion. And for the Corinthians, the very reality of what they said they believed about Jesus was being destroyed by what they were doing at this meal that was supposed to commemorate him. There's an interesting meal motif in Scripture. It starts in the very beginning in Genesis. In creation, God creates the world. On the sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve, and he invites Adam and Eve into a garden. You guys ever noticed that? And of course, it doesn't say that God actually got behind a stove and like fixed up some 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 Blinkies and Chewies for Adam and Eve. But in a sense, Adam and Eve had the, uh, I mean, it's the buffet of all buffets before them. I mean, it was organic. It was non-GMO. They had spring water, not this purified mess that the grocery stores sell. It was the best of the best. Also in the garden was a tree, a tree that provided food that was like, if you ate it, it would provide eternal life to you. God interestingly told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that they ate of it, they would die. That was a provisional covenant. Uh, It was the covenant of works that God instituted with Adam and Eve. And if they had fulfilled that, if they had like obeyed God to his word, guess what? They would have lived forever. And so would you and I. But they didn't. And so there's this beautiful meal. And God says, hey, don't do this and, and, and you'll live. And in a sense, of course, God was restricting them. But, but here's what God was doing. This is a better uh, perspective of this. God was saying, every time you get hungry, you get hunger pains. Every time you think about food, don't think about me restricting you. Instead, think about me being all that you need. I am your supply. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay before you everything that you need. More than that, when you think about your, 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 your hunger, your hunger pains are hitting you, know that it's an opportunity for you to submit to me. Lord, I give all that I need, all that I want right now to you. And for you and I, uh, like thousands of years later, every time you come to a meal, like y'all eat a couple times a day at least, right? We got a couple of people that, that do uh, intermittent fasting. Y'all probably eat once a day, right? Like 2,000 calories in one, one sitting. But for the rest of us, we got three, like, three opportunities a day, 21 meals a week, that we can remind ourselves that not only God is our provision and our supply, but more than that, 
Uh, he's giving us an opportunity to worship him. And that's what meals in the Bible are for. And so God enacts all of these feasts and these meals to remind, firstly, Israel of opportunities that they can, they can actually worship him as they eat. And we're going to see this a grand meal uh, in the future called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the table is going to be filled with every delectable you could ever want as Jesus welcomes us, his bride, into eternity. Perhaps the, the most distinct meal of all in the Bible is the Passover meal. We can read about this in Exodus. We aren't going to go there. I'm just going to tell you about it. And it's a remembering of the unbelievable deliverance of Israel from Egypt. You guys remember the story. God, uh, by his strong arm, by a lot of miracles, uh, rescues Israel with power and might. And he not only rescues them, he takes them to the Red Sea, and for the next 40 years, he cares for them as they journey through the desert. He rains down manna as sustenance for 40 whole years, and then one day, he decides to take them into the promised land, a land where there's milk and honey. Another meal laid right before them. And through these acts, they were to remember God every day, but particularly once a year, reenacting his provision and deliverance and the presence that he gave. And that's what Paul goes, that's where Paul goes next. As he's reenacting uh, the, the communion meal that Jesus uh, set in place in, in, uh, in the Gospels, and he says this in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't know if Paul received this instruction uh, like from Jesus himself, like, you know, how Paul had that vision of Jesus on the Damascus Road and like all this is, is, is all this knowledge Paul has about Jesus and, and about theology and stuff. We don't know if Paul got it by revelation or, or if he's just reciting what the early church would have known by tradition, by oral tradition. But the thing that Paul highlights here are the ways that Jesus takes this normal Passover meal and he makes it about himself. And so he takes bread, he gives thanks for it, he breaks it, and then he says these important words. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This would have, like, he's with the, the, the disciples, right? The apostles. And in the upper room, it's his last supper. It's the night before he was going to die. And they don't know all this but when Jesus says those words, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me, that would have got their attention. They would have been very familiar with a rabbi, given a liturgy, walking them through the Passover meal. They would have been very familiar with their fathers, their, their, the leaders of their households, walking through the liturgy of a Passover meal. They would never have heard these words. And, and these words are only surpassed by his next phrase. He says, this cup. This cup. Here's what we know about the, the cups of the, the liturgy of the Passover meal. There were four cups, and each one was um, spread out during that Passover meal, and each cup was a part of the remembrance of God's deliverance of, of Israel out of Egypt. And we get this from, from Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. God says, I'm going to bring you out of bondage. 
I'm going to deliver you from hands that are too strong for you. I'm going to redeem you from all those things that are, are wrong in your life, some of them which you have brought on yourself. And I'm going to take you as my people, and I'm going to give myself to you as your God. And so during this Passover meal, it's particularly the third cup, which was called the cup of the Redeemer or the, the cup of the Messiah, that most theologians believe that in this moment, as Jesus is reciting these words, he's picking up a cup and he's saying, this cup of the new covenant. But what the disciples would have heard is, this is my cup. That's what they would have, would have heard. That's, they would have interpreted Jesus as saying, this is my cup. And, and this, honestly, would have blown their minds because Jesus in this moment is alluding to them that he is the Messiah, this long-awaited suffering servant that's going to come and save them. But he's also reinterpreting what the Passover meal was about. So when Jesus says in verse 25, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, when he talks about the new covenant, this is an idea that goes all the way back, not just to the Old Testament, it goes all the way back to the, the creation of heaven and earth. A covenant is a, a, a binding agreement between two individuals. A covenant is a, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That's what a covenant is in the Bible. It has to have two parties, one a sovereign, the other a lesser. God makes promises in exchange for our obedience. He invites us to be his people. He gives us the choice to be his God. And, and with this exchange, God has both blessings and curses, stipulations and signs and seals that he's going to actually do what he promises to do. And so in the Bible, we see a covenant that began with, with Adam. Adam, don't eat of this tree. You'll live forever. Uh, uh, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. But the one that all these covenants actually point to is the one that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31, but that we actually see fulfilled by Jesus. And he, Jesus is really is the only one that could have fulfilled it. It's a covenant that said God would send his suffering servant. They called him the Messiah to be everything that Israel could not be. What's that? A perfect display of God in the world. That he would be everything that we couldn't be. That he would suffer and die for the sins of the people. Not only forgiving us, but healing us of our wounds. And this suffering servant, this Messiah, was spoken of as one who would not die. But he, he'd, stay, uh, he'd come out of the grave. He'd rise again. And people would believe, uh, the, the people of God believe in a future day when God would not only forgive their sins, but he'd give them a new heart. He'd take their, their hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. He'd write his laws on our hearts that he'd give us his spirit, pouring it out into us so that we would be a people of God dwelling in the place of God's choosing. That's what they believed in. And that's what Jesus is referring to in the midst of this Passover meal. And so this new covenant that the Old Testament people of God were hoping and longing for, and this is the midst of the Passover meal that Jesus is instituting. Jesus basically says to them in, in these words, he says, I am the Messiah. And so Paul is reenacting this tradition, and he's telling the Corinthian church, when you gather for an agape feast, this is not just fellowship around food. It's not just a simple gathering of the church. You're first and foremost remembering Jesus through signs and symbols, through bread and wine. And every time you do this, you're proclaiming the truth of the gospel to one another 
that should transform the way that you treat one another. This simple meal is meant to represent the very nature of the gospel, that we were enemies of God, alienated from each other, and yet God invites us to his table where we really don't even belong. And in some ways, Transit Church, every Sunday that we come here in this place is practicing that. We're practicing this very thing, that we're invited to a table where we don't even belong. Every remembrance moment in a church service is a practice for every table that you'll sit at all week long. How God takes people, listen to this, where God takes people who are not only enemies of God and makes us his children, but he takes people who are enemies of each other and he makes us friends. Look at Jesus' disciples. If you go down to just the, the list of Jesus' disciples, I mean, these are men from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, that if it weren't for Jesus, they would not be hanging around each other. You got two sets of brothers who are fishermen. Fishermen were considered unlearned and just low life. So you got James and John. You got Andrew and, and, and Peter. You got Simon the Zealot. Zealots were crazy. They carried knives around just in case they wanted to kill somebody on the moment. And then you had Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors were cruel. They sold themselves to the Roman government, and then they, trade, they, they took money from their own people. And then, of course, you got Judas. And these are the people, the men that Jesus would call to himself to, to change the world. Think about us in this room. There are some of us in this room. I mean, some of y'all might hang out together because you're military, and the military obviously is one of the most diverse institutions on the planet, right? Thank God for that. But, I mean, if we were walking on the street, down the hallways of the mall, and didn't know each other outside from church, perhaps some of us would not even speak to each other. Perhaps some of us would be enemies. We've got Republicans and Democrats and independents here, and I've seen y'all on Facebook. I mean, y'all might smile at each other in church, but my goodness, y'all are like devilish on Facebook, especially when it comes to your politics, right? It's as if you don't even know Jesus for the sake of your politician that you're going to vote for. There's ethnic diversity in our church. And if I can say this without offending you, but even if I do, just take it. Sometimes, those who are ethnically diverse in our church don't feel like they belong. On a lighter note, today the Redskins are playing the Cowboys, and some of you have nerve to root for the Cowboys. <laughs> and if you don't root for the Cowboys, you're rooting for the Eagles or the Giants. Traitor. That's what you are. Even worse, some of you are carrying Android phones when you know the iPhone is the best phone. <laughs> <laughs> but even if we're enemies in all these areas, here's what Paul says. He says we're brothers and sisters. We're at the table, a table that Christ invites us to. And, we, and, and if we're in Christ, all those other things that might build walls up, you know, so that we can't get to each other, are torn down. Paul says that in Ephesians 2. He says, the wall of hostility has been torn down. I love what Don Carson says in his book, Love in Hard Places. He says, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education or common race or common income levels. It's not common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, 
or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And so this agape feast was meant to represent truths, the truths of Jesus so that when we got to the table of remembrance, they would be prepared to remember in a proper way. And that's what the Corinthians were not doing. Unfortunately, they were putting themselves over and against other people who were there. And Paul says, this is dividing you when you should be preparing through the feast so that you could properly remember Jesus, which is the reason why he's brought you together. And that's what Sunday is supposed to be for us. Sunday worship gatherings are a rehearsal for everyday life. That in this room, you get the opportunity to try it out, to speak to a person that you wouldn't normally speak to in the everyday walks of life, to befriend someone that comes from a different cultural upbringing than you, that may make more or less than you, that may, that may, that may speak differently than you speak. And you come to the communion table and you take bread from a loaf that was that was broke, that was whole, and we've broken it up. And then you dip that bread into uh, a bowl of juice that everybody else is dipping their bread in. That's what's supposed to happen. And even with our community groups, when we gather during the week, having a meal, fellowshipping, praying, getting into God's word together, those should be places where we help each other be people of grace and kindness and of extravagant generosity as we invite people to the table, to our table. Regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they come from, regardless of what they sound like. Why do we do that? Because we're here together. And what we do together is really training for everywhere. And what we do at this table, at the end of our service, is training for every table. Here's the third thing that Paul wants us to, to know, that this meal, this family meal, rebukes, but it also redeems. Verse 27, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This particular section of scripture has been misconstrued by a lot of people. I know a lot of people who, a lot of Christians actually, who misinterpreted these, these scriptures to say that, you know what, if, if I had a couple sins this week, then I shouldn't be taking communion this week. That's not what Paul is saying. The thing to note that, 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 that Paul is talking about is he says, uh, he, he doesn't say unworthy person. He says unworthy manner. The truth is that if we're banking it on us being worthy people, then none of us deserve to take communion. Right? So what do you need to be able to take communion? It's not that you're so sinless that you can come in, in your pure self and, and receive the body and the blood of Jesus through the symbols of, of bread and wine. That's, that's not it. You come to communion when you're able to admit that you're a sinner in need of grace and you got a Savior who's willing to give it to you. Amen. And that's Jesus who forgives us of our sin and died on the cross in your place for your sin. I would tell you, Transit Church, if you come to communion and you don't feel a little bit of weight about your sin, then you probably want to pause, you know, I don't know if you've ever recognized this, but every week we do actually, we call it fence the table. We say, hey, if you're a person of faith, if you've professed faith in Jesus, if you've confessed your sins, Jesus is your, is your, your Lord, your Savior, you're following him, then you're welcome to come to the table with us. And so what that means is if you're not, 
then this meal is of no value to you. It's not going to do anything. It's It's just a piece of bread and juice, and it has no efficacious value to you. This is a fa- this really is a family meal, the family being the family of God. But if you acknowledge that this bread, this wine, is a picture of Jesus' love for you, that his blood shed for you, that you might be forgiven, then you should, of all days, come to the table. Paul also says that Corinthians coming to the table in an unworthy manner is because they fail to examine or discern the body. Here's what he's saying when he says that. He's saying, when you come to the agape feast, part of their job was to say, how are we loving one another? How, how am I treating my brother or my sister? Are we treating each other like Jesus treated us? Are we welcoming people to the table or excluding them? Are we holding from filling ourselves, filling ourselves up with food so that others might partake? Are we willing to sacrifice by eating less so that, uh, so that others benefit from our sacrifice? And because they were doing these things, they were disregarding the very nature of the gospel. And so Paul's saying the reason why they're being judged by God is because they failed to discern the body. What's the body? It's the fact that you belong to a a, a family of God, a a body of people. We call it the body of Christ, brothers and sisters together in him. And I think it's the same for us. So examining ourselves and discerning the body should cause us to ask, is there anybody I've excluded inside the church, outside the church? Are there people I've kept from table fellowship, lunch table, dinner table, at my house, at the restaurant? Are there people I'm not willing to forgive? This, this is going to hurt you. Are, are there people who I, pri- I might not even want to give reconciliation or, or be in relationship with? Are there people I don't want to be in community with, in my neighborhood, at work, even at church? It's like the Corinthians, when we do this, it means that we're disregarding the very nature of the gospel. And and so here's the exhortation from Paul. Let's, Let's stop and let's examine ourselves. Because if you're doing these things, then you're not listening to God, the Holy Spirit, or you need more of him. Verse 30, almost done. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and, have, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemning along with the world. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that if we belong to God, we'll all be disciplined for our good. Here's what the writer of, of Hebrews says. God loves you, and so he's going to judge you so that you might be at peace with him. So you should, I mean, don't shrug off those places where God the Holy Spirit is, is, is making you feel uncomfortable. Those are places that he wants you to think about what you're doing in all of its varieties and perhaps confess sin, repent it, and allow him to, uh, to change you. Last couple verses, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, about other things, I'll give you direction when I come. So y'all, y'all have been to family meals and get-togethers where everybody's assigned some, some part of the meal. You come together at somebody's house and you're excited. It's going to be a great meal, great fellowship, great time, whether it's just your family or maybe even the church. But then, uh-oh, the person that had the main dish, and it was going to be glorious, they, do not, they don't show up. Or perhaps the person your favorite person making the mac and cheese, 
oh my gosh, they don't show up. And so you got all this grand food laid before you, but the meal is just incomplete because the thing that we need for the meal to be complete is not there. Don't you hate that when it happens? It, it happens. So what are you left with? You're left with some string beans, some potato chips, and a couple cookies. Go with it. <laughs> and so Paul is, and what he's saying is getting into what we'll talk about next week. But he's saying this is a picture of when the body of Christ is supposed to come together, but we show up with all of our gifts and generosity. Uh, and if, even if one of us is missing, it means that we're supposed to be together, but we're not quite. And so uh, here's my verdict in all this. I, I want us to, to let Sunday be training for every day. And we are fortunate that we have a little bit of diversity here in our church. And you guys get to rub shoulders with people who aren't quite like you. And so let's grow in this. Let's become more, ways, more aware of ways that we are selectively dividing ourselves even as we gather on Sundays. Why? Because we can, and the Lord would commend us to that. Here's what I want us to do. I want you to take 30 seconds before we take communion, before we sing a song, before you get busy and start greeting everybody, and just we run out of here. I want you to take 30 seconds, and I want you to confess any ways God the Holy Spirit might be convicting you. We don't, we don't take time to do this very often. We take communion every week, but how often do you actually respond by confessing and repenting of your sin? And here's what I want you to consider. Would you consider something like this? God, would you show me any way I've been exclusive, that I've kept people from the table, from my table? Or maybe I haven't even opened a table for people. Would you show me any way I've lost sight of what it means to be a part of your family, a body where we all get to contribute and invite and include. Let's take 30 seconds. Let's just do that in silence and solitude, and I'll finish with prayer. Jesus, here's our confession, is that we have sinned. There's not a person in here that hasn't been exclusive of to some facet of people that we just choose that we don't want in our lives. Oftentimes, we think more about our stomachs than we do about our hearts. Some of us um, make the decisions that we make just for our own personal comfort. We have made the choice that our home is our castle, and it's not a place of ministry where you would encourage us to invite the stranger in to gather with us. And for that, we pray that you forgive us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you invite us to a table that we don't even belong outside of you. Lord, we want to display what you look like to the world. And a place that we get to do that is at the table with all kinds of meals, at the lunch meal, out of the restaurant, particularly in our home, and definitely as we gather as your church in communion. So would you meet us here? We thank you. We bless you. We love you. Amen.